Thank you, David. It's so sweet that he considers me. Oh, thank you. It's so sweet that David considers me one of his closest friends. <laughs> Just joking. Um, yes, he is one of my closest friends. Awesome, awesome man of God. Uh, I'm so excited to be back here with all of you. It's been over a year since my family and I have been back and I've been able to, to teach from the stage. I'm so excited. Um, I get emotional worshiping alongside all of you. My, my wife and I, we worshiped alongside of you during some really difficult seasons of our life. And so uh, we, when we left, we were pregnant. And so I just wanted to give you a little update and show you a picture of what our family looks like right now. Our Brooklyn, our Brooklyn, our daughter Brooklyn is one year old. Uh, and uh, our son William just celebrated his seventh birthday. He's missing a tooth there. So um, we're loving uh, pastoring in Newburgh and we're so grateful to be back. Okay, so you are all in a series called Dwell. This is a really good series. Have you guys been listening to the series? It's really good. God has really blessed this community with some very gifted preachers and teachers. I've loved learning about Isaiah from pastors Bo and Jamie and Alex. And I love that this series is called Dwell. If you've been following along so far, you know that dwelling is what the story of the scriptures is all about. It's about God dwelling with us, us dwelling with him, and learning how to dwell with one another. When the Apostle John describes the nature of Jesus in his gospel, he says that the, the word of God came and dwelled among us, that he made his dwelling among us. If we look back in Genesis, in the creation account, we can see human beings dwelling with God and dwelling with one another. And God beholds this dwelling and he says, it is good. And when he says it is good, it means this works. God looks at it and says, you are who I created you to be, doing what I created you to do. Your identity, your belonging, and your purpose are all right where they need to be. You are loved, you have a home, and you have a purpose. And that's what we're gonna be kind of exploring today. In the scriptures and in our walks of faith, there seems to be this tension between being and doing. Who we are and what we do. Are, are we defined by what we do? Or are we who we are on the inside? And if I am who I am on the inside, why do I sometimes do things that don't feel like me? Am I a human being or am I a human doing? Now, traditionally, you might hear a pastor say something explicitly like, you are not a human doing, you are a human being. I've probably said that before. And in a culture that is so obsessed with doing, I can understand why this is a very comforting message for us. But if I could nuance this a bit, I actually think when we hear the question, Am I a human being or a human being? The answer is probably closer to something like, yes. <laughs> we are who we are and what we do. Our purpose in the world is very, very important. So the growth point for us probably isn't necessarily to just stop doing altogether, but to rather transform the doing and maybe get back to the heart of why I do what I do. Because in the garden, we were given both a beloved identity by God who, who made us sheerly out of his desire and love to be with us. And from that place of identity and belonging, we were also given this great divine purpose. So the growth point is not to stop doing, but to transform it. When we look at other creation myths in ancient cultures like the Sumerians and the Babylonians, they have these creation stories. And out of these stories, human beings are always born out of really intense violence. And they're created for the servitude of the gods. But in Genesis, God creates human beings out of his sheer desire and love to do so. And then he offers human beings partnership 
in stewarding creation together, and he says, it is good. But then something happened, and we messed up God's ordinance, the way that he's ordered things to work. And it's easy to look at the world around us and to see this, right? To see that things are not quite how we know they're supposed to be. If you haven't encountered, even if you haven't encountered Jesus yet, Pastor Jamie talked about us having this thing called the Imago Dei, the image of God, the DNA of God within us, which tells us that what we have around us, that this is not it. This is not it. There's something about injustice, something about evil that we just know deep down in our bones isn't right. C.S. Lewis famously wrote this, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the only explanation is that we were made for another world. The world we live in is distorted. The one we see around, around us, it breaks God's ordinance and it causes chaos and strife. But the world he created is perfect. And everything in the scriptures is pointing to this story that God is trying to rebuild, that he is making everything new again, restoring creation to what it was intended to be in the garden where we dwell with him, he dwells with us, and we dwell with one another. The Old Testament scholar Sandra Richter said this, God's original intent for humanity is God's people dwelling in God's place with full access to his presence. When we find that place of dwelling with God and dwelling with one another, we will finally have what the Hebrews call shalom, perfect peace and harmony in all of creation. And who we are and what we do will be ordered in a way that is again good. Friends, God has done everything he has done and he will do everything that he will do because he longs for us to be with him forever. That's the story. And Jesus was not plan B when plan A went wrong. Jesus is the rescuer and the redeemer of plan A, God's people dwelling in God's place with full access, access to his presence. But until he completes that good work that he has begun, we live in this tension, a lot like these posed exile Jews that the, uh, the prophet is writing to in the passage we just read. And in a lot of obvious ways, the post-exile Jews in this time of ancient history are very different than we are. But in a lot of ways, they are wrestling with a lot of very similar ideas that we wrestle with today. This passage in particular addresses a whole nation of God's people who have just stepped out of a long exile at the hands of the Babylonians. And during that time, their culture, their practices, their community, it's all been torn apart at the hands of the Babylonians. And they're kind of experiencing this identity crisis. They found themselves struggling to find out who they are, to, to remain faithful to what God has called them to be and do in the midst of exile. And as they begin to rebuild their nation, rebuild their cities, rebuild their walls, rebuild their temple, rebuild their religious practices, they found themselves wondering, who are we really? It's been generations since they've had their land freely able to worship God. They're having in some ways to start over, and it's hard when we start over to break the habits that we've learned along the way perhaps the habits that they've learned in exile. They're having a hard time distinguishing how they were taught to worship and live by their oppressors and how God is asking them to live right here and now. And this is where I think you and I actually have a lot to learn from their journey. Because we have another, many other things which vie for our discipleship. I think sometimes, listen, I love our nation. I don't think I'd wanna live anywhere else in the world for real. But at the end of the day, any nation that isn't being run by Jesus 
is kind of just another version of Babylon. However benevolent or democratic my nation is, if it's being run by human hands, it's going to fall short of what God has designed for this world. And sometimes what happens to us is that we forget that we were, as Lewis puts it, created for a different world, a different kind. And we become very comfortable in our land of exile, but not comfortable in a good way. We're like, I'm at peace with the promises of God amidst difficult circumstances, but I actually find myself having kind of this secondary allegiance. And I become discipled by my culture more than I am by God. I become more of a Babylonian than I am a child of God. And then Jesus becomes this kind of magical fairy dust that I sprinkle over the top of my life in hopes that he can make it better. But like in Casey's song that he shared with us last week, that's not how this Jesus follower thing is actually supposed to work. If we want the good that God has intended for us to manifest in our lives and in our communities, he requires everything. What we need is to give him all of it our devotion, our affection, our worship. It has to belong fully to him above everything else. Otherwise, there's always going to be this competition in my heart for who is really the Lord of my life. I can't be worshiping Canaanite gods over here on the side and remain loyal to Yahweh. And Jesus reminds his followers in the Sermon on the Mount, which we're gonna reference a lot today, that no one can serve two masters. You can't. I can love my country, and I do, I can pray for its prosperity. I can seek its flourishing. I can pray for its leaders. I can even cheer on its sports teams. But I must not be deceived. It's not my home. Not really. As Paul writes in Philippians, we are first and foremost citizens of heaven. That is where my first identity and allegiance lies. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would grace these words. I pray that everyone in this room would receive your wisdom and your love, that we would have for us today what you have for us. Be with me as we share from your word. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so let's unpack some of the language that we see in the passage we just read. There's a lot of talk of light and yokes and gardens. At the end of the day, what does any of this have to do with us as Christians? Well, as pastors Alex and Jamie and Bo have unpacked over the last few weeks, there is this tension surrounding what it means to be the people of God. You see, they've, they've rebuilt their temple. They've opened up the Torah again. They've reawakened their festivals. They're fasting and they're praying. And yet, the presence of Yahweh has not returned to dwell in the temple again. They're doing all the right things. They're reading all the right things. They're fasting and they're praying. They're being set apart. They're being holy But again, there's idol worship happening. There's covenant breaking happening left and right. Because what's happening is that they're wanting the perks of worshiping Yahweh, but they're being influenced by the cultural uh, uh, influence of their conquerors. They want that Yahweh fairy dust over what they already have going. But the prophet is challenging the people to remember why they were set apart in the first place. The people of God were not chosen to be set apart so that God can have some favorites on the earth. God set the people apart in order that they might be a blessing to the nations. In Genesis 22, God tells Abraham, all nations will be blessed because you have obeyed me. So the prophet uses these harsh words to wake up the people of God. Look guys, it's not just about fasting. It's not just about good religious practices. 
What are you actually doing to help the people around you? What about the poor? What about the sick? What about the orphan? What about the widow? Are you caring for them? There seems to be this disconnect of, of, of God, of, of us being who God called us to be and who, who he called us, what he's called us to do. And the presence of God, again, hasn't come back to the temple. And they have to be wondering why. They're like, God, we rebuilt the, the temple. It's nice. It's pretty. We did the, the fruit trees and we got the showbread and we're diffusing the oils that you like, you know, the Young Living brand that you're into or whatever. Like they've done all the things and the presence of God has not come back to the temple. How come? The prophet says something kind of difficult here. He basically says, when you start acting like the people God created you to be and when you start caring for the people God cares for, then he'll support what you're doing but he's not gonna endorse a fruitless faith. The prophet writes that after they start doing all these things and caring for the less fortunate, then it says in verse eight, then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. When you start doing the work God cares about, then he'll have your back. But if you neglect the people that God loves and you do it while pretending to be about his business, that's not something that he will support. One of the 10 commandments is you shall not misuse the name of the Lord, right? A lot of us hear this and we think, well, that means I shouldn't stub my toe and say like Jesus Christ or whatever. But really what this is about is about misappropriating the name of the Lord. When I take God's name and I stick it on my agenda as if it's God doing it when it's not. That's what misusing the name of the Lord is about. And that's what we found here. People who say, we're doing this in the name of God. And the prophet says, if you were doing it in the name of God, you'd be doing what would be done in his name. <laughs> this isn't about God loving you and wanting to be with you. That will never change. And that is how God feels about you. But how can we expect the provision of God when we're neglecting the will of God? Think about it this way. You can still love and desire to be with your children and yet still refuse to enable their harmful behavior, Right? Sometimes we, as a people of God, need to be parented. Sometimes God needs to teach us something. So the, God, the prophet is challenging them to be the people of God who not just say they love God, but their love of God is demonstrated in the way that they love other people. The, the prophet is confronting what Pastor Bo called dead religion. Pastor Alex mentioned James last week, right? Faith without works is dead. Okay, so here's where things get interesting. We fast forward really uh, uh, roughly half a millennium and we come upon the people of God and they've again been conquered, but this time by someone named the Roman Empire. And the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious elite, they still haven't really gotten the message because they enjoy lots of wealth and privilege while the rest of God's people are being oppressed by Roman taxation and Roman law. But they're still doing some good things. They're giving to the poor. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us that they're announcing it with trumpets on the streets because they want to be noticed by others. They're trying to do more right things, but they're kind of missing the point. And Jesus accuses them of being whitewashed tombs, appearing well put together on the outside, but on the inside, they're dead. So this same tension seems to, seems to continue to be a problem. Now, Jesus references Isaiah uh, many times in the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew 7, he says this, 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Sounds a lot like Isaiah, right? Don't just pray a lot. Do good things for the people around you. And we might read that and think, okay, so just tell me what I need to do. How much do I need to give? How many people who don't have homes do I need to talk to every week? When's Pastor Mark digging the next well? I'll go and I'll do that. Yes, it's all great. But right after Jesus says that, he then says this. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, away from me, you evildoers, I never knew you. So what's happening? You tell us that we need to put our faith into action, that we need to do justice and to love mercy and to love the people around us, but then if we do that, you still reject us. So people who acknowledge Jesus as Lord, but aren't doing the Father's will, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. But also those who are doing the good work of the Father, but do not know Jesus, who have no connection and relationship with him, will not enter the kingdom of heaven either. There's a reason why Jesus talks so much about the heart. Jesus is after this kind of inner transformation that redeems my desires and my will and my actions. It's not enough to simply say that I love God and to try to keep from breaking the Ten Commandments. It's not enough just to do a ton of good work. He wants us to be transformed from the inside out. Otherwise, what we produce will always fall short of what it could be when in partnership and relationship with God. Without connection and relationship to the Father, how can I really be about his business? When it comes to life with Jesus, who we are and what we do need to be fully integrated facets of our lives. And dead religion focuses too much on just one of those things, but a deeply formed life in Christ is unified in the knowing and the doing. So I'm gonna outline a couple of things. Pastor Bo called this dead religion, and we're gonna call this other thing over here a dwelling faith. A dead religion and a dwelling faith. So the first thing about a dead religion, a dead religion knows about God. A dead religion can know a lot about God. A dead religion can memorize the Bible. A dead religion can become really well-versed in theology and history. A dead religion can out-debate anyone who questions them. But knowing about God and knowing God are not the same thing. A dead religion knows about God, but a dwelling faith will know God. In Acts chapter four, we see how the people react to the ministry of the apostles. They say this, they say, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. In any kind of friendship or relationship or marriage, yeah, it's nice if you know about the person, their likes, their dislikes, their tastes, all of that, that's great. But true relationship is more than just about knowing about someone. A stalker can know about someone. But we're called to connection, to actually know God. Let me know if you have this problem. How many of you know have this, have this problem? You're like me, and you know exactly how to fix the problems of everyone in your life. Anyone else there? Just ask me my opinion. I have three steps to fix your life. I do. I pull this with my wife all the time. And you know it just goes well every single time she asks me, right? Here's the thing. 
she's not interested in my solutions until I've taken the time to know her. Until I know how to feel what she feels. Until I'm as angry about the thing as she is. That's what she's after. But you know, I'm too smart. (laughs) Stop wasting all that money on a therapist. Just ask me what you should do and I'll fix it, right? But honestly, why do we think there's a wait list for every single counselor and therapist in our nation right now? Is it because we're a generation full of snowflakes? No. It's because we're not okay. We're not okay. We're trying to pretend like we are. And we don't want solutions. More than anything, what human beings need is to be known, to be heard, to be understood. And from that knowing can then flow the good work of reconciliation and renewal and redemption. But until you've proven to me that you know me, that you want to know me, that you feel what I feel, I'm not really interested in your advice, right? David Augsburger wrote this, being heard is so close, to, so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. Do we take the time before we check the religious boxes to actually try to connect with God's heart and to ask him, God, break your heart, break my heart for what breaks yours. Help me to see the world as you see it. Do we take time in prayer and solitude and reflection to be with God or has our religion taken the place of our relationship with him? A dead religion can know about God, but a dwelling faith knows God. A dwelling faith has spent time in the secret place, has retreated to the quiet spaces, has intentionally dwelled with his presence. A dwelling faith embraces the reality that truth is not an idea to be understood. It's a person we are invited to know. Second is that dead religion works for love. Dead religion works for love. It spins its wheels and hits the grind to earn the approval of God. We have a culture that literally works for the weekend, right? But a dwelling faith is the opposite of this. If we look back on the Genesis story again, the first full day of creation for human beings was what? The Sabbath, a day of rest, a day of being and a a day of dwelling. And it was from that place of dwelling that then flowed the good work of the garden. We don't work for the weekend. We don't strive to achieve the love of God. We're given it. And from that place of love then dwells the good work. And thirdly, a dead religion will be anxious. Dead faith is anxious. It has no peace because it does the opposite of dwelling faith, of dwelling with. It pushes us into isolation from. And isolation from is very lonely, a very fearful and very anxious place. But a dwelling faith is secure. Because even when I walk through the valley that is dark and full of death, I fear no evil because he is with me. You know, in John chapter 15, the apostle John recalls this teaching that Jesus gave on the night he was betrayed. And Jesus gives this beautiful metaphor about how he is the the branch or the vine and how his disciples are the branches. And he tells his disciples to abide in his love like a branch to the vine. And if they do that, they will bear much fruit. 
that when I remain in the love of Christ, my life will produce goodness. What I do will flow out of who I am because who I am is rooted in who he is. There is no question of being or doing. When I am a branch in the vine that is Christ, who I am and what I do are one in the same. There's a lot of mixed metaphors here. Isaiah talks a lot about light. It's interesting because he describes the messianic figure, whom we now know to be Jesus, as light. But he also refers to us as light. The Apostle John refers to Jesus as the light of the world, and then Jesus turns around and calls us the light of the world. How can this be? Well, when I look at a vine, I see its individual branches in the vine, but I don't think, hey, look, there's a vine and some branches. I see the vine. In the same way, when we unite ourselves to the love of Christ, we become the light that he is shining in the world. Light is this recurring theme in Isaiah and all throughout the scriptures. In in chapter nine, verse two, he says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. In John chapter one, it says, in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Light is this perfect example of how being and doing can be completely unified. Light is what it is and it does what it does. If it's light, it shines. And if it shines, it's light. How many physics geeks do we got out there? Anybody? Any physics? Got one? That's it? There's more. That's a lie. There, okay, we got one. Thanks, mom. Um, really is my mom, actually. Uh, <laughs> light is both a particle and a wave. What it is and what it does are inseparable. Light is what it is and it, is and it does what it does. Likewise, should our lives with Jesus be? Who we are and what we do need to be one in the same thing. And Isaiah is trying to get them to see that when we are, who we are and, and what we do, when they're unified by the love of God, that's when our light shines. That's when we bring hope. That's when we bring clarity in the darkness is when we do that. <laughs> in Isaiah 58, it says, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like noonday. When our passion for the Lord is exhibited and overflowing in our actions because it's who we are, that's when our light shines. Jesus tells us to let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds, but the catch is that they may glorify your Father in heaven. If we're doing good things because we wanna earn the love of God, or as the hypocrites do, desire to be seen by others, we've missed the point. Our light should always point people to Jesus. And then we're described as a garden. What's the deal with gardens in the Bible? Well, Eden, right? Everything is always coming back to Eden. God is trying to restore creation back to how it was in the garden. But what's interesting is that in verse 11, it says that you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. You shall be like a garden. Not only are we going to it, we're gonna be it. The word dwell in, the New, in a lot of times in the New Testament the, the translation for dwell is to make one's tent among you. So when John says Jesus came and dwelt among us, really the best translation would be Jesus came and made his tent among us. Well, what were tents in, in the Bible? It was about the tabernacle. The tabernacle, which is where they worshiped God before the temple. It was made to resemble the garden because the garden represented man and God dwelling with one another. That was how creation was supposed to be. So we get to now tabernacle among the world because God lives in us. His presence is in, is in us. We become living tabernacles. We become living gardens with springs of living water, aka the Holy Spirit, 
which wells up with inside of us and we get to make the world Eden wherever we go. Heaven goes wherever we put our feet. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in the salvation question, which yeah, it's important. But we often say things like, have I done enough to get to the good place? Have I done enough to make it to heaven? That's dead religion. A dwelling faith is asking, have I done enough to embody the heaven within me, around me? Have I done enough to embody heaven on earth? Am I dwelling with the Father in such a way that he is rubbing off on me and that when I look into someone else's eyes, they see God's love for them in me? It's not just about where I'm going when I die. It's about whether or not I'm becoming who I was intended to be and doing what I was intended to do while I'm alive. We as God's people, you and me, we get to treat this place like it's God's. That's what we get to do, carrying with us his presence wherever we go. Okay, so what's the pathway for us then? How do we keep from becoming people of dead religion? How do we become people who embody a dwelling faith? Remember, a dead religion focuses on just knowing about God without knowing him, or on just knowing about, or about doing things for God but not really knowing him. A dead religion is a cut off branch trying to bear fruit on its own. How do we keep from becoming that? Well, because I'm a pastor, I have three points. But listen to me. It is not a, it's not a three-step program. This is not three ways to get your life to a loving purpose. That's not, that's not what this is. These are, these are ideas that I wrestle with all the time. And I think all of us, if we're honest about it, we're going to have to be on a journey together as we learn how to embody God's love. So don't take this as like, okay, I'm gonna do these three things this week and I'll be on my way to having a dwelling faith. I don't, I don't, that's not what's happening. Let's open up maybe a new level of awareness and start asking bigger questions about how we become integrated people. So the first is to receive the love of God. Receive, receive the love of God. Where does a religious spirit come from? It comes from failing to embrace this reality that God desires to be with you that he wants to give you his grace, that he wants to forgive you, that he wants you to abide in his love. That's when I get a religious spirit. I feel like I have to earn my way to God's love. There's this parable in Luke 15 called the parable of the prodigal son, or that's how we tend to know it. But actually the, the character of the older brother is what fascinates me. So if you're not aware, there's this father who represents God, he's very wealthy, and he has a younger son who wants to take all of his share of the inheritance and go live in a way that's wild and spend it all on wild living. So he does this. The older brother stays home, follows all the rules, does all the chores. And when the younger brother comes back, his father forgives him, gives him grace, welcomes him home and throws him a party. And the older brother is not having it. He's like, I've literally never broken a single one of your rules. I do everything you ask of me all the time. And yet this guy, this fool, who spent all of your money comes home and you throw a party for him. And the father says something to the older brother which haunts me sometimes, that I feel like if I really grasped it, I would have an embodied love. He says, son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. I think a religious spirit comes when we fail to recognize that love. That we don't have to work for it. That he gives that to us freely and everything he has for us is ours. 
The meanest bullies are always the ones who are the most abandoned and abused, right? I think people of dead religion, when we have that dead religion, it's because we failed to accept the grace that Jesus offers to us. The second part of this is to be formed by the love of God. So we receive the love of God and we're formed by the love of God. I stop doing to get to the Father. I start doing out of a place of belonging with my Father. Because we begin to look like whatever we're formed by. If I'm being formed by my culture, I'm gonna look and behave like my culture. If I'm being formed by Jesus, I start to look and behave like Jesus. Am I being transformed in this dwelling with God? Am I becoming more of who I was created to be? And then the third thing is when we've received the love of God, when we start to be formed by it, then we start sharing it. We share the love of God without even trying. It becomes a part of who we are. When I've received for myself what God freely gives to me, it freely is given to others around me. Isaiah says that we will be like gardens with springs that never run dry, with waters that never fail. When I've understood God's unfailing love for me, I'm now secure in who he is and who he's made me to be. And I don't have to live in scarcity or fear. I can freely give it away. I think there are those of us here who are wrestling, confronting the religious spirit in us. That your faith really lacks joy. That this Christian thing, that church has become about your checklist of things that you critique when you walk through the door. It's become about the ways that you complain about your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's become about how different is everyone is from you rather than how much you are united by Christ's love. It's become a place that is robbed of joy and peace. You feel anxious and you're bitter because you pray and you fast and you read the Bible and you know it really well and yet you're miserable and yet you can't play along with others and yet you feel like you're an outsider even though you've been in church longer than any of us. I feel like there are those of us here who wrestle with this. The spirit is able to do an incredible work in all of us. But what the spirit needs from us is humility. God opposes the proud, but he exalts the humble. What he wants for you is joy. What he wants for you is this dwelling faith where what this life is not about what I can do for God or what I can know about God, it's about being with him. And in the dwelling, I begin to know God. Even in the mystery of knowing about him, I still get to know him and be in relationship with him and what I do becomes transformed by his love. There's gonna be people, elders, who are available to pray for us at the end of the service down here at the front. If that's you, if you're wrestling with this, come and get prayer. And again, this is not three steps to a better life. This is three things that we wrestle with when it comes to the love of God. And our journey with God becomes learning more and more how to embrace it and how to let it be. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would come and bring clarity. That what was spoken would be focused like a laser into the hearts and minds of everyone here. That there would be just one word, one phrase, one point of truth that makes it through and that we hear from you this morning. 
I pray that what I've said and what we've shared would be used by you. We offer it now as an offering at the altar and we say, use it, God. May it be a blessing to you. In your name we pray, amen.